0: out into the world with action. The diverse life of a musician with my good friend Chuck Kentis. You guys are in for a treat today, boy. So get ready for this interview. I met Chuck some time ago and you know how like when you meet somebody you just know you got to know them? Well, that's what happened. My introverted self took a while to ask him to be on the show because I was nervous that he'd say no, but I was wrong. He said yes, generously. So Chuck Thank you for being on the show, and I know that you have some cool stories. And I also know that you're very inspiring. You inspire me every time I talk to you. So I'm excited to see where this conversation goes today. And I want to welcome you to Someone Gets Me.
1: Thank you, Diane. It's a pleasure being here. I'm very glad you asked, and uh, I appreciate the compliment of uh, being uh, inspiring. I I, I just uh, try to be myself. And, uh, you know, as as we get older, it's kind of like, I mean, you know, I really don't have a, a care about what people think of me or, when, or, or I have no pride and no shame. I'll tell you that. Uh, and that that uh, that continued through throughout my musical career, <laughs> I'd say.
0: Right. And your musical co- career continues. And the thing that I love about your musical career, which I'm going to have you give us a little flavor of it here in a moment one of the things I love about it is the diversity and how things kept changing and growing and evolving as you kept saying yes to different opportunities throughout your lifetime I mean like you started playing when you were five right and so that means that you've been in this world longer than a lot of people have been a lot it's really cool and you do composing and you do sound design you do lots of things so give us a little snippet how did this all start? Like, was your family, were they all musicians because you started so young? Or how did that all work?
1: My family weren't musicians. My dad was, was loved uh, uh, country Western music, like real country Western. He had a harmonica that he used to play. And I remember my grandfather also had a harmonica. So when I went there, he'd always play harmonica. And I just found out recently, which I didn't know, my aunt, I, I just documented uh, my family history with her. Uh, she's like 90 because she knows all the stories. but. They at one time had a piano and he played violin, which I never, never knew that. But the story from my mom goes when I was like three, we lived in uh, Lake Precipone, New Jersey, and uh, the neighbors next door had a piano. And uh, my mom came over one day and she's listening. She's saying, who's playing the piano in there? She goes, that's your son. (laughs) He goes, he would come in. I would come in, like not even knock on the door. I'd walk in there and hi and go and play. And they'd let me play. And I'd like pick out. She told me, she goes, you, you're picking out themes from TV shows, you know? Wow. So, yeah, so I started. The, and then what happened was we moved into a house in uh, East Patterson and uh, there was a piano in the basement already. And, and the, the people who, who lived there were trying to move it out the stairs of the basement and the thing went down into the wall, like crashed in the wall. So they said, we're leaving this here. So we actually moved into a house that had a piano. So my mom started, uh, uh, got me piano lessons, which, you know, wasn't something I really wanted to do. I love playing, but, uh, but the teacher started teaching me piano and theory, you know, which I'm so glad that I learned. And my mom used to say, cause she'd make me practice my mom. Someday you're going to thank me for this. <laughs> you know? And, um, so I, I started playing trombone in high school, uh, not in high school, third grade. And, uh, so I kind of played that through throughout uh going into um, junior high and stuff but i I didn't want to become like a classical pianist or anything like that you know around 12 or 13 i started just uh playing you know composing like just playing things that i would uh like to play you know and wound up uh performing one of my pieces in eighth grade or something like that at a a, you know band concert and everything like that so that's where i kind of like really took up the love of it again and uh, but I didn't I wanted to compose and I, we actually found a, a, a resident composer in Patterson, Richard Lane, was actually recorded. He's he's uh, records and stuff of his pieces. So I was taking composition with him, you know, beginning of high school and all that. And uh, I actually started when when I when I was playing in band in high school, it was, you know, they had marching band, concert band, jazz band. I said, how come we don't have a rock band? So I, I formed a rock band for high school rock band, first high school rock band. And uh, all the all the guys that I picked were all seniors, you know. So uh, they left, you know, after my first year. But they said, "Hey, you know," we're, they started playing bars and clubs and stuff. They said, "Hey, you want to join this band?" I said, "Well, I'm 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 a bit underage, you know." So, "Well, we'll get you fa- fake ID. Don't worry about it." So they got me fake ID. Started working nightclubs and stuff in high school, through high school, and then my friend, I had a friend of mine who was also pianist, but he was classical pianist. He played Chopin and everything. And there was a little room that had a really nice uh, Kawhi Grand in there. And we used to kind of like take turns playing and stuff. And, and we were friends, but we we're always kind of like battling. You know, he liked romantic. I like Baroque, you know, and we would kind of <laughs> battle between those two. He's like, Baroque is so boring. And I'm like, well, it's mathematical, you know. And uh, and uh, anyway, so he he wound up. Uh, going to summer school in his junior year, and he, he graduated. He, so he, he graduated early. Wound up enrolling in uh, Jer- Jersey City State College for music uh, a year early. So I was like, "Damn!" So my senior year, I uh, I had got enough uh, scholarship points, whatever, to that I only need to take two classes in the morning. So <laughs> I went over to Jersey City State and I said, "Hey." I'm still in high school, but can I can I uh, apply to take some classes here, music class? And I said, "Well, just get a note from your counselor." <laughs> so I went and got my counselor. He got got me a note, and uh, I started going up, you know, taking classes there in the afternoon and evenings at Manus, at not Jersey City State, and uh, there they didn't have uh, you couldn't major in composition there. So I said, "Oh boy!" So I went. I found uh, I don't know what <laughs> where I got the nerve to do these things. <laughs> I went to Mannes College of Music in New York City, and talked to the dean there, and the same thing. I said, "Look, I'm still in high school, but I would love to, you know, study here." And he says, "Yeah, I'll give I'll give you composition lessons." And I was taking composition from him. He assigned me an intern uh, student teacher at the school to teach me like uh, ear training and counterpoint and things like that. And uh, then that all came to a drastic end when I joined a glam rock rock band that <laughs> started. Working, there was a scene in North Jersey that was there were so many bands and so many places to play. I, I like in within say 10 mile radius of where I lived in Patterson, there must have been 20 bars and clubs that had live music, and each one of those had between two to four bands a night. And this was seven nights a week, you know, you can go and, and some bands would get like every Monday here, every Tuesday there, every Wednesday there. So There were like hundreds of bands that were working and making money, and guys would, I was able to play, and they were long hours. You would start at nine and go till two, so you played five sets. you play like 45 minutes on, 10 minutes off, and uh, so you were playing, you know, five nights a week. You were playing like six hours a night. You had to get better, you know, as a musician. Right. And, and, and also you're getting paid. It was like, we were in, we, you know, I'm fresh out of high school and I'm like, uh, no, I was still senior when I was doing that. So, you know, I was making decent money and, uh, and traveling and stuff. And, and uh, it, it um, yeah. So, so I did that and I did a few other bands and in New York in the seventies was really cool. Cause they had this, uh, I saw in like, I think it was a village voice. They had this, music registry, you know, and, and I went down there and for like $10, they put your name on the list, you know, anybody looking for a keyboard player, anybody looking for a guitar player and stuff. And they call this registry and say, well, here's this guy, this guy, this guy, you know, and I get called for auditions and I go in and do that, you know, and I wound up getting, you know, big gigs, you know, go on the road, go, you know, national tours, international tours and stuff. And uh, so I started doing that and uh, I wound up, uh auditioning for a band in New York uh with Carmine Rojas who was he was uh, he had just done Let's Dance with David Bowie's record and he was going to go out with Bowie you know on that tour and he had done he was in LaBelle and and then so when LaBelle broke up you had Patti LaBelle Sarah Dash and Nona Hendricks. Nona Hendricks went on her own as solo artist so we started I started playing with her through Carmine and touring with her. And that's kind of like where I learned. And and uh, well, I had learned funk before because I was in a band down in Philadelphia Uh when I, li- I lived down in Philly for a couple of years. I played with this all black band called Bittersweet. We used to play all the nightclubs and stuff and it was all funk, you know, that 70s okay. funk and stuff. Yeah. So when I got with Nona, I knew how to do that, you know. And I was playing with the other keyboard player was Bernie Worrell, who was uh, with Talking Heads. And he was also, he did all the synth lines for Funkadelic you know, flashlight and all those songs and stuff. So and I used to room with him and this guy was a child prodigy. I mean, he was, you know, he played for symphonies when he was 12 down in Washington and stuff. A real sweetheart guy, but just a one of those guys who, who was always kind of like, I don't know, Charlie Brown or something, because we do <laughs> rehearsals in New York and his car would get towed every day, you know, and we all felt bad for him. but like, oh, I don't know. So I didn't own him, and, uh, and then with Carmine, we I got with uh, uh, John Waite, and I did a record with him, and then we got a call to do Julian Lennon's first tour, uh, and uh, that was through uh, Phil Ramone. You said you work with Billy. Did you know Phil? Phil Ramone, no. the producer? Okay. No. So we're doing Julian's first tour and uh we go in and this kid he, he had no idea of anything like as far as live performance you know right. it just done a lot and i had it had that hit out and uh he was like "Well, how do we hear ourselves on stage and you know we're kind of like walking him through it but this kid had perfect intonation you know when he would sing it would be dead on you know no mm-hmm. you know it was like and i sang backup so it was like a really cool thing to sing with him and we did a couple Beatles songs, but the, the thing that really got me was, like, I think it was the first day we went in and we're checking out the PA, he started singing Twist and Shout. And it sounded like his dad. I mean, it uh-huh. was like scary, you know? You know, he did that that part, and he sounds just like his dad. So that was, like, spooky, you know? Wow, but yeah. It was, uh, you know, it was, it was crazy. His first tour was all sold out. Everybody, you know, wanted to, uh, you know, be you know, because of his dad, you know, right. like what he of like. And he had, to, he had to conquer that, you know, he had to get past that. And that's hard for somebody that young, I think, mm-hmm. to, you know, to have to live up to that kind of thing, you know? And uh, so, yeah, that was interesting. Um, you know, and then gigs just came in. and you know, I was doing Julian and, and John Taylor from Duran Duran saw a gig, and he asked me to do uh, uh, the power station
0: mm-hmm. with
1: that was with uh, the two duran guys andy and john tony thompson from chic and uh, uh robert palmer was a singer for, on the record but he didn't want to go on the road so they used michael Debar and uh, we did live aid in 1985 at the in philadelphia and that was that was pretty cool and then uh, tony did uh was working with bernard edwards who was producing one of rod's records out of Water. Tony was the drummer and Rod wanted a new band and, and, and suggested me to play keyboard. So I flew in with Carmine. Uh, we had just finished. We were just finishing a tour with a, a, a British artist, Bluey Sum. We finished the last day and we flew out to California to LA to do the auditions. And uh, I, that night after the audition, I went back to the hotel. I actually prayed. I said, hey, look, if I'm supposed to have this, give it to me, but if I'm not supposed to have this, don't let me have this. I understand, you know, and I was, I was really praying for, for, you know, God's will on that because, right, right. Uh, uh, you know, it was, it was a, it was a weird time for me. So, uh, I, I didn't, I wasn't sure if I should take this or not and I wound up doing it. And, uh, I, that was in April of 88. And I did that up until like four years 2017, right after that. Wow. My- I was with him for about 30 years.
0: Doing right. That. So the Rod you're talking about is Rod Stewart.
1: Rod Stewart, yes. Yes.
0: Okay, uh, just clearing that up for the listeners.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. But right. I have
0: to I have to stop for a second yeah. and I have to tell you a funny story that just popped to yeah. my mind <laughs> when you mentioned Duran Duran. Okay. Because first of all, I love their music. But I you just brought back the fun, the coolest like vision in my head. When they were really big, I had a parrot, a yellow nate parrot. His name was Jeffrey. And whenever I would play Duran Duran, he would sing with them. He wouldn't sing with anybody else, you know, no matter what music I was playing or whatever. And he would, ooh, and he would sing with them. And so I used to turn on Duran Duran just to listen to my bird sing. And I haven't had that memory in so long. And it's such a fond memory. I'm like, oh, my God. It's like so cool. Oh, wow! <laughs> <laughs> what an interesting, like weird kind of intersection, you know. But I you just sing along with the songs. That's incredible. Yeah, it was great, and and he would sing along with them. And I'm like, and so he must have heard it from me enough times to learn it, obviously. Really. And um, but I really loved. It. I loved their music, so I'd sing it a lot. And so he used to sing along. And when he said that, I'm like, oh, I forgot. Jeffrey used to sing to Duran Duran. <laughs> That's. So- See, music, so music just transcends everything.
1: Does it? Does you know it's it's uh, you know it's funny how it can really uh, trigger memories and and I think that's the thing with uh, you know especially with playing with Rod is because of uh, I remember like when I first heard Maggie May I was in a, a, a Volkswagen VW was a, I was I was like freshman or something I was in with senior the senior girl clarinet player and we were drinking booms farm apple wine You oh know, my. but i remember that vividly you know i can remember right. on the radio so it does and so like when we do those shows it's like you know the, all those the people in the audience are kind of going back to those places when they heard those songs you know and that's why so many people love the you know these legendary acts you know you mentioned billy joel and you know paul mccartney and this you know all those people that we grew up with in the 70s, 80s, whatever. Right. Direct- like period. James
0: Taylor, Kenny Loggins, all of them, they have these yeah. acts and these songs that take us, transport us right to that time and space.
1: Right. Right. We're,
0: anch- we're anchored there, you know? And in fact, I was at Disney one time and, um, oh, who was it? The village people were playing and only only one of them is the original, right? And quite frankly, it was awful, right? But everybody in the crowd was standing and hooping and hollering. And I looked at my friend and he looked at me and I said, they're just living in their memory. Yeah. They're not really hearing mm-hmm. it. They're hearing what's in their mind of it. And they're having a blast and enjoying it. So bless everybody. That's really great. Mm-hmm. There were some moments where my friend and I are like, are we missing something? You know, because it, it was not great at all. Yeah. Watching the crowd live in their memory. Now yes. that made it entertaining.
1: Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it's true. I, I have very good friends of mine whose oldest daughter, her name is Maggie. May.
1: Yeah. There's hundreds of those that, that right. come. Yeah. You know, yeah. do your kids after that, after, uh, after uh, you know, a lot. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I mean, you, so you get that. Yeah. Side note, one of my closet, one of my skeletons in the closet is I did the Village People's first tour. And in 1978, before they, you know, this was before they even got big, we were playing discos and then Macho Man came up. So within a year, I stopped playing like these discotheques. Uh, Within eight months, we were uh, playing, I did two two sold out nights at Madison Square Garden with them, you know, and it got just blew up incredibly, you know, and I went right toward uh, Japan, Australia, and, you know, I backed up, there were a bunch of acts that were also, uh, on the same management, the Richie family and and Felicia Rashad was Felicia, the girl, the woman from uh, the Cosby Show. She mm-hmm. was Felicia Rashad at the time. She was a singer. She was doing Josephine Baker stuff. So let's talk about varied.
0: <laughs> wow. Well, but that kept you interested, right?
1: Well, you know, it was my first big international tour. You know, I hadn't, you know, so you know, I was going. I went to, you know, it was twenty twenty one. And the band I was with from Philly, Bittersweet, they were, we were all like 19 years old and stuff. And, you know, we were going, we were playing, we were in Japan for like a month, you know, playing through uh, all these places. And, and it was, it was, you know, so many experiences I had was, a, so this is 78. We went to, we were playing Hiroshima and went down to the A-bomb dome, which is the memorial for the atomic bomb. So this is only 30 years after the, you know, right. after, after that happened and so we go there and and we're just standing out i mean i'm six foot everybody else in the band is like six four you know and these japanese people they'd be terrified when they see us i remember in hotels we'd on the elevator the doors would open and the last thing you expect to see is is like a is, is an elevator with like you know Seven black guys were like six, four. They thought it was either a basketball team or, they, you know, this look of confusion would just come over them. (laughs) And and so anyway, we're at the, we're at the A-bomb memorial and it's, and there's no tourists. There's no like, you know, it's all school kids, Mm -hmm. you know, Japanese little school kids going through this and seeing this horrific tragedy, you know, and seeing us, and looking at us, and and you know, these are Americans. These are you know, and and so well, so it was um, you know, it was it, it was emotionally confusing, you know, those right. type of things. But they're real, you know, and they're real. And 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 you know, when I tour, I I, I you know, we go we go to those things. Rod's a really big history buff, and and uh, we were, we played in uh, Poland. We all went down to uh, Auschwitz and saw that. And, uh, you know, you, you can see the beauty in humanity and the beauty in the world. and But you also have to be reminded of the, the absolute horrific things that man is capable of, you know, yeah. because you got to remind yourself that that's that's, you know, that those things happen and uh, they can happen again. And, you know, and and, and uh, so so it's uh, uh, I think it's part, a good part, a good thing for me personally to experience those things, you know because it, it, it kind of rounds me out, you know, uh, right. there, there's a, right. you know, as far as you're talking about diversity and stuff like that, you know, I was very, I can, for me, I was kind of chameleon. Like I could go and play like these real punk clubs in Philly and New York and the Lower East Side and stuff like that. And then wind up, you know, doing white tie affairs and <laughs> <or something, laughs> you know, and, uh, so, but that's the musician is kind of becomes a, for me, it kind of becomes almost like a character, you know, and that's the way I can get over. Uh, like I said, I've got no shame and no, no pride. I can, you know, I'll do anything on stage. And uh, but, I, but it's, you know, I almost it's not really me almost, you know, it's kind of right. me hidden underneath, but portraying, you know, this character outside that, you know, that's just as far as like performance goes, you know. So uh, I, I love that part of it. And I kind of miss that. But, you know, I kind of learned that early on. Playing in uh, glam bands in the seventies, you know, playing, you know, Bowie and band, you know, we right cook things, yeah. You know. So I don't know where that's going.
0: <laughs> I don't either. So I want, um, and you're in the Guinness Book of World Records.
1: Well, I uh, Rod is, but I was there, and what brought what happened is, but
0: you were there, you, so that I was, means you're there too.
1: And, and uh, actually, my pictures in it with, with, I'm playing on stage with him, and uh, uh, I think that's hilarious. Uh, we played. We've had the world's largest free concert audience, the, the largest audience. So we, we played, it was uh, December 31st, 1994 uh, in Rio de Janeiro on Copacabana Beach. So we played, you know, and the beach had, I remember driving and they had what they called delay towers set up like for miles. So you'd have like screens with speaker systems and then you'd have screen. And what they'd have to do is delay it because sound is you know doesn't travel that fast so the sound of the stage by the time it gets to a person who's say you know 500 yards away it's going to be you know so they have to delay that sound there in order for it to be in sync right technically anyway but so you know they estimated that night was like 3.5 million you know which like you know it's just unfathomable but anyway that's the free and and nobody's broken it yet the stones try to do it down there but i think you only got 1.5 million so that's yeah. my my big claim to fame, having a, <laughs> the Guinness Book. I just think it's hilarious. Yeah. You know? Right. My kids, my grandkids and stuff looking, it's like, oh my goodness, you know, what was that?
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, it's one of those things that it's like, it's fun and powerful and cool all at the same time. And like, who would figure? Like, I know when you were in high school, you weren't thinking, let me see how can I get in the Guinness Book of World Records, were you?
1: Now it's goofy, uh, goofy, like, you know, just <laughs> happens, you know, and, and the thing is with life, it's like you can have that happen and then you can have, you know, and then there's real disasters that happen, you know, too. You know, you can get lucky in one way and get uh, far unlucky in another way, you know, but those are circumstances that you would never dream of happening that do happen, you know, and it happens to a lot of people, unfortunately, you know, and, Right. Uh, you know, so they you got both ends of that. You know, oh, and all the t- weird thing used to have a, have a faith that kind of carries you through that, you know, where you're grateful for the, for the things that, you know, are nice, you know, but then when the other side happens, uh, it's kind of trying to make use of it, uh, try to make it, turn it into something positive that becomes, right. you
0: know. Right. Exactly. Because you can learn how to have faith and be grateful in the face of things that aren't so great and grateful for the things that are great. And know that overall, there are some, everything works together for the good in some right. cool way. So how did you handle not being understood by people who didn't get it through your lifetime? Like, how do you handle that when people just look and they like, they don't get it?
1: I, you know, I just kind of, I you know, I don't know if I ignored it, but I, I I kind of gravitated toward the more toward people who did get me, you know? So like in high school, I didn't hang out with with anybody. It was like, you know, I had the one musician friend who actually got out early and then all my friends were were had graduated and they were they were all musicians so i, I usually hung out with guys who were you know way older than me and uh, uh but uh yeah, yeah no so it's a that's a good question i i really didn't i didn't uh take it to heart you know sometimes you get i guess disappointed you know that you know especially like musically you're doing something music because i I always tried to think out of the box and do things, you know, way, you know, just kind of away from center, you know? Right. And so that's not going to, that's not going to click with the majority of people, you know? And, uh, I had to come to understand that, that that's, well, that's why it is off center because it's not, you know, people don't, you know, right. you know people like things a certain way or music a certain way, you know, very straightforward. And, uh, and then you have stuff on the outside and, and I, you know, I didn't, I'd, i sacrifice that. So in, instead of going for the accolades of doing, you know, musically something that was, you know, this is apart from my work, you know, I was, I was a sideman, you know, so a lot of that stuff was just, I was just hired as a, as a, you know, as a sideman to do the, those gigs. And, uh, but for my stuff, so I, I would, uh, I like to go slightly left but, and then understand like, you know, and not be, bitter about it or not be judgmental of people or anything like that you know and just well this is what they want to do this is where i'd like to take it it's just in me that that uh, you know i can do the the straight ahead thing and i did and i did that for a, for you know composing wise as well uh i did a lot of a lot of production music back in the 90s so that production music is uh, there's companies that that um uh that offer music to like sports stations, TV shows, reality shows. You know, it's like put in music or the background music or what have you. And and so you know, my assignments would be to do things. Uh, I do do a bunch of things that sound like '80s. You know, radio music. You know, or do some like uh, beat swing. You know, or or uh, um, you know. Uh, um, energetic you know sports kind of themes and stuff and i did a lot and what i would do is while i was on the road i'd have like a studio i'd take like a small recording setup in in my room and i would do those at night after shows so it's kind of like doing two jobs at once and then i started working with our drummer david palmer and we, we started writing for uh, you know some tv shows we did do some tv commercials and things like that so that kind of thing you know you're, you're you're like asked to do a certain thing and and so you compose straight up the middle or you you know you do what they want as opposed right. to what i want you know it's kind of like they're the they're the and a lot of composers get like kind of twisted about that you know because it, it's hard when you're writing something you kind of comes a personal part of you it becomes a uh, comes part of you so when people reject it you feel like they're rejecting you you know and you get you get personalized at it right, but, uh, right. have to disconnect it and say no this is a uh, you know this is this. Here you go. And uh, what, what can you change? Can you change this and change that? And and yeah, you know, like TV people, it's like, you know, you make like 10, 15 changes, you know, so you got to get a tough skin. you got to have a tough skin.
0: Right. Right. Because they're looking for something specific and they don't even really tell you what it is probably completely until they start hearing it and go, well, what about this or what about that? And
1: and they don't know what it is. Sometimes they can't explain. Expect- most of these people are not musical in a sense. So, so they're trying to describe it in a, in a certain like right you know, categories, colors or something like that. But the pro and then you've got like three people that are, that you're trying to please at the same time <laughs> that forget it, you know, it's like we're on for weeks on this before somebody decides what they want.
0: <laughs> right. And can not even identify what's going on. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but, but so doing that was, you know, it's, it's fine. And it, and it, uh, they were nice niches to be in uh at the time, you know, it seemed like it's it, you know, it seemed like for me every my career was like, you know, I hit the I hit those points where at the right time for some reason, you know, like touring uh in the in the 80s, 70s and 80s and stuff like that was a lot of fun. It was really crazy and stuff. And uh, uh now it's really difficult. You know, I know a lot of my friends were on the road and and with Covid and just the business in general, and the whole the whole music industry really changed a lot. You know, going into the nineties, two thousands, And uh, you know, you kind of got to swing with it. You know, it's like, uh, you know, music. When I started in the seventies and eighties, I'm sure there were people in the forties and fifties were like, damn, what is this? You know, they're playing, <laughs> you know, right, right, the big band, and they're like, man, you know, not working. What the hell is going on here? You know. All through that, but I was at a good time because I I, I was able to play. I played like five nights a week all the time. You know, you played and got paid. You know, it was great.
0: So you uh, were so you were like in heaven, living living this like dream reality of all these really cool things because you kept saying yes along the way.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you know, it was it wasn't always. You didn't feel like it was a dream. You know, I didn't always love like you know. I mean, there was it was hard. I yeah. mean, I, I had back then. Now, like, you know, people play, they bring their computer and they hook it up to that. I had an electric piano that was like eighty-eight keys, two pieces. Each piece weighed probably 90 pounds. Right. And, yes. uh, I would carry that damn thing up two flights of stairs to a second floor apartment by myself. Like, you know, every other night. I mean, it was work, <laughs> you know, like it, physical hard work.
0: Right. It was physically hard. And then there was all the travel that takes a toll on you. There was a lot to it. And. <laughs> And it's funny because I've been on tour and I know that it's hard. And I can only imagine extrapolating that over decades and decades and decades and decades. I, you know, like I don't have decades of experience, but I have enough. I have a taste of enough to extrapolate it and go, oh, this is way harder. And what goes in behind the scenes for the show, for the concert that we all go to, And, like, people my age have what I call mid-70s syndrome. You give us a a band that's big in the 70s or music from the 70s that's big, and we all, like, jump right to that time frame. We're there singing, dancing, running around, and we will go see tribute bands for those people and those people until they're not here anymore because of the memory and the connection. And I always say, and they played real instruments. Oh, yeah. And sang real song. I mean, they were really singing like, and there's an appreciation of that. And my mom was a concert pianist. She did um, a lot of classical, but my parents taught me about jazz. Like my first music that I loved was jazz and scat and stuff like that, like really into it. And when we were on a tour, one sailing tour, we were in Toronto and we spent one of the nights. Now I'm like 16 ish Mm -hmm. somewhere in there. And, I wasn't drinking age yet. I know that. And we went into all these bars, all these like hole in the wall, jazz club, dark, cool spots. And my mom would teach us all the different cool jazz things like about this bass player or that thing or this thing. Like, cause she was a genius. And I learned to just love jazz. I still do love it. And, and music like high quality, good music, like people who like get, get the math. They get, the talent they get the precision they like get it there's a difference between that and other kinds of music though I love them too so what what who are the jazz people that you liked oh I loved um Herbie Hancock yeah
1: yeah.
0: I loved oh what was his name Chuck Mangione I love oh yeah 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 yep all kinds of like that
1: it's funny you mentioned Toronto you you were you were listening to jazz up there Mm mm-hmm we went to
0: We went to some street. I don't remember where it was, but my mom was all excited for us to go to all these jazz clubs because she was educating us on that culture of the small little jazz club. And we went from club to club. Like we spent, I bet we went, it seemed like a hundred, but it couldn't have been that many. It was probably like six or seven. (laughs) I was too younger. I, I was loving it, but didn't know. And there was this place in, in St. Pete, we were living in Sarasota at the time that had jazz like downstairs and we would, my parents would go and my brother and I would listen as long as we could, and then we'd go play on the beach and come back and listen some more. But we really were indoctrinated to the whole jazz scene from the time we were very small children. And, and I'm glad. I'm glad about that because I have a great appreciation for high quality music and different kinds of music. And I love it all. Like, I think it's really cool as anything.
1: It's, you know, I, I love jazz too. There was a really great uh, jazz station in New York that I used to listen to all the time. And uh, I got to see like, uh, you know, Elvin Jones and, and, and uh, Charles Mingus and, um, and, and there was a, when I lived in, when I lived in West Patterson, there was a club down the street, it was right across the street from the Passaic River. It was underneath this Route 80 bridge called Gulliver's. And it was a hugely famous jazz club uh, for New Yorkers. So like on, on, on nights when they had somebody playing, like Thad Jones or somebody, Thad Jones used to teach up at Montclair State University. jersey and he would play and it would be the place would be parked cars everywhere all new york plates. Mm -hmm. all these people drove in from the city it was you know we were like 10 miles outside anywhere they drove into this place and they had there. it was just this little you know tavern and it was tiny inside you know and uh and they had live jazz it was incredible
0: yeah absolutely incredible yeah that that i just love it so I'm wondering if you have any cool stories that you want to share, or a cool story that you want to share about all your time you hung out with Rod. Okay, you played for him for a long time. I did, yes. And so I'm thinking that you probably have something that's cute or funny or neat or that you want to share. And if not, that's okay. But I was just oh no, no, I
1: do, I do, I do. And, and they're not they're nothing uh, off uh, right. taste, You know, things that are are not tasteful and stuff. I mean, there's those, but I'm not going to talk about those. I'll talk about the, the, the crazy stuff. So we were, we were playing, this was on our first joint, I think it was like, I was about a year and we were playing in, uh, it was Massachusetts. Anyway, outdoor venue, amphitheater, you know. And uh, our stage set was this big metal set that had, uh, you know, I was on a platform, drum was on a platform, horn section was on a platform. And all around us were these steel ramps that went up, you know, so he would run, you know up these ramps that are behind us and down and stuff like that and he was nuts you know his performance that you know he would right, do right. these weird things you know just out of nowhere he'd like lay down on the <laughs> stage and just you know like after you know he's running around or something like that and uh and we're you know it's, but it, the thing was we always had to watch him because it was uh you know things he would change arrangements every night and stuff like that so it really kept you on your toes so anyway we're, we're playing and uh he runs up this ramp next to me but we had these lights these moving lights that would like they were like big octopuses mm-hmm. and they came down just enough for him to run ram right into it on his head oh no and he's yeah. out cold so we don't see it because it's happened behind us the audience has seen this and he's knocked out cold we think he's just doing what he always does you know he's laying down <laughs> and we're, playing. No. we're playing and then we're like isn't he supposed to be singing now? You know, and we, and we look and he's still laying down and you get that, you know, you get to that point where you're like, oh no, this is not, <laughs> he's not <laughs> just faking that he's out. So he's out now in the front row, uh, is this, uh, this doctor comes running up and he says, you know, let me fix him up. He's, he was Mike Tyson's ringside doctor, right? So he knows how to fix somebody up who's knocked out. So they get him and he's like, stitches him up gets his mold on and he finished the rest of the show so it was <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh my word
1: yeah yeah oh, it, my the audience word. got a really good night that night that was uh, that was insane oh my word but, uh, you know he was he would do the craziest stuff on stage and and it's that british sense of humor you yes. know that it's really like uh, he would do this ballad i forget what song it was where he's singing and he's like up front on the stage and he would have one of the state one of the uh guys on our crew come across the stage with a broom you know and just like a big and just sweep across the stage while he's singing every night and the audience it's that kind of weird english kind of humor you right, know right. and he had this uh he had a song that was a huge hit all around the world except for the states so a lot of his songs like in the uk and europe and south america that were big hits there weren't hits here and the ones that were his here weren't hits there like maggie may was not that big you know not his biggest song over there it was a song called sailing or i don't want to talk about it. the song, song. sailing <laughs> we already finished the show that night and we had the screen behind us where you know they put stuff up and everything like that so he wanted to we're doing sailing and at the end of it he puts up a scene from the uh, the old movie, the old black and white movie, A Night to Remember, which is about the sinking of the Titanic. <laughs> so he's got the boat sinking down and this uh, you know, as we're doing this song. <laughs> stuff like that. Just uh, I was just, you know, it's 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 so genius. It's it's just, you know, it's so funny. And but a lot of people didn't get it. But I, you know, we all loved it, you know, the things he would do. So like I said, he would have no uh you know no shame and i learned that from him i learned that you know it's it's like you can go up there and not be uptight and kind of like you know you gotta lose for me i lost a lot of my self-consciousness and stuff like that so i i was i would try to kind of go into doing things like that like there was uh uh i learned on the road i picked up a musical saw and I learned how to play a musical saw. It took me about two or three weeks. You know, it's not easy to do for bed. People don't know what a musical. saw. Is. it's like a regular saw right. that has a hand. You hold the top of it and you bend it and you use a violin bow.
0: Right. I've it's seen
1: people it. do it. Right. And you get that sound out of it. And so I said, I'm going to I'm going to play this in a song, you know. And oh, no. uh, so I told the crew. I said, set up a microphone for me. I think it was like on tonight's Tonight or something. I said, I'm gonna I'm gonna sit down and play this, right? So I did. You know, I <laughs> sat down and I played his bow. Now, Rod is the kind of guy he will not give you the satisfaction of giving you a reaction. You know, so it's kind. Of, well, you can do these things, and he can look at you and just like nothing. You know, and that's his thing of like, you're not gonna get a rise out of me. You know, and uh, I love it. So yes, yeah, so there was another another night that, um, um, let me, let, you know, I told you about sharing a picture. So yes, this yes. is, uh, let, me, let me see if I can do this. Let me get this up first. Cause this goes along with the story. So there were nights where I, I would, you know, I would definitely try to get the rise out of them. Drew loved it. You know, they were just, you know, dying and everything. I would do that like once every 10 shows or something, you know, and it was just, so that's like the character of uh, going up there and doing those things that are just uh, pretty, you know, uh, they're funny. You know, you're on the road, you're just trying to amuse yourself. And, and you know, we're still real professional and all that, but there was, <laughs> it was one night where the guys, so I would do, the, the guys in the, in the band were in the dressing room, they dare me. They said, uh, we bet that you would not go up there and wear, uh, we had three girl background singers. And at the time we were all wearing whatever we wanted to wear, he says, we we'll bet you like three hundred dollars you win or a hundred dollars. We won't that you won't grab one of their outfits and wear it on stage during the show. And I said, Oh no! Hey, I was in a glam band for you know I used to do that every night. So I went to one of the, I went in the locker, uh, the wardrobe case, and I picked out one of the girls' outfits. She was tall and it was like a bright orange jumpsuit. So I put the thing on and I go on and I play the whole show like that, you know. And there again no reaction you know he's not going to give me the satisfaction and i'm like but anyway i was well i did it so at the end of the night as they're carrying down and you know it's backstage with you know like an arena so there's that, that whole truck loading area and and rods is leaving in his limousine and uh so he's driving out and i'm waving to him all of a sudden the window comes rolling down chuck chuck come here he goes I really loved what you had on tonight. Was that like a Versace or something like that? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. You know, it could have been a TV show. I was trying to, I'm trying to write a TV show with my son, Noah on the things that like that would happen. You know, it was uh, another one was we were playing. Tell me if I'm going too long on these. We were playing this. um, We played in the round, which is the stage in the middle. Right. and we were playing stadiums in the in the uk uh foot, big football stadium so you're in the round and you have like these four kind of towers that go up where they can hang the lights you know but you're in the round so which means that when we come out the band we have to walk through the the audience to get to the stage you know right and, and that's fine you know people knew we were the band but you know we that's not what they came to see they were so how do you get Rod out there? You, you know, you're going you know, to walk him out on stage. So what they did was they put him in like a big speaker box, like a piece, looks like a piece of equipment and roll, roll him, out. him out, roll him out with him inside to the stage. Right. So they're rolling him out one night and uh, they, th- some reason the way it was set up, they got lost. They couldn't get to the stage the way the things were, or else they were like, like they had stuff on the ground. They couldn't move. 10 minutes, they're going around, he's inside, like banging, what's going, you know, trying to get, you know, like like, not be able to breathe in there. So, you know, just things like that, which are just, you know, it's kind of like multi towers or something, you know?
0: (laughs) Oh my God, that's hysterical. Well, there's a whole bunch of other things I want to ask you. So I'm going to have to ask you back for a second interview because I'm running, we're running out of showtime. Okay. Um, But I have two questions I want to ask you before we're done today. One What's the most memorable food you've ever eaten on all of your travels all over the place? What's the most memorable food?
1: Well, two places. There's boule in New York City. Uh, they have the tasters menu. And that guy's like world famous chef and stuff. The other, which I really, because whenever we go to England, or UK, I go for Indian because it's the best Indian in the world. Uh, London, or you know, basically anywhere in the UK, but I found a place that does Nouvelle Indian, which was nuts. I've never had, I've never seen it, never heard of it, and it was absolutely stellar. And they do a taster's menu there. It's in South Kensington, across from Kensington Gardens, and uh, I would, you know, wait for that place to open up to go in and and get food there. And it was like I've never seen anything like that Nouvelle Indian. So that was probably it. You know, that to me sticks.
0: That sounds really really cool. Well, th- we're gonna, I'm going to ask you to come back on the show because I want to talk to you okay. about, about being a father with your sons and, and some other things, challenges you've been through and all of those things. So thank you for saying yes.
1: Oh, yes. yes. So your
0: final question for today's show is that we're going to put a billboard up with your message on it for the world, for the whole world to see. Chuck Kentis' message. What is your message for the world?
1: You know, I... I for me, life is kind of about observation, you know, taking things in and stuff. I'm I'm the same as you. I'm introverted, so I'm not I'm not, you know, out there talking all the time. So, so most of those, you know, people think that you know, because I'm quiet, they maybe I'm stuck up or something like that. I'm like, no, that's just my nature. I'm just quiet. I'm not I'm like different. a yacker kind of guy. Although, you know, this interview probably proves something <laughs> different, maybe. <laughs> But
0: uh, uh wait, I just got you I just kickstarted some fun conversation that's all I did. <laughs> love it.
1: But but anyway so I would probably put up something like uh look listen and love. You know.
0: Oh, I love it.
1: And and you know cuz cuz that's for me was like, you know, I, I, that's how I learned about things, you know, and 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 you know, sometimes I have to stop myself from uh if somebody's having a, if we're having a conversation, I'm listening to somebody, you know, like you were, and not to jump in there with my, you know, blah, 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 uh, and just listen, and 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 look, and and uh, and then love, you know, it's kind of like those those three things for me, you know, it's important to converse and everything like that, but a lot of times I, I do that through music. That's that's my expression, you know, it's not always, it's not what I say, it's kind of what I what I what I play or what I write.
0: Right. Oh, I know it's beautiful. Well, I want to thank you for all your time and all your cool stories. There is so much more that I want to cover. It is not funny.
1: Oh, I look forward to coming back. It was very nice. Sorry, we ran out of time. My blabbing away there, but uh, uh, this—I hope this. You know, I love this show. I think what you're doing is fantastic. I've seen—I've seen other parts of it, and I congratulate you and give you kudos for 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 you know help. You know what you're doing for the for people. You know, I think it's great.
0: Oh, thank you, Chuck. That means a lot to me. And thank you for being on the show. And so if you guys are half as inspired as me, in the show notes, you will find all the ways to follow Chuck. Because I have hunted him down on YouTube and everywhere else, and I watch everything. And it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. And I'm very picky. So thank you for being on the show with me today, Chuck. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And remember, keep your face to the sun so the shadows fall behind you because you're a rock star. You're here on purpose with a purpose. So go out there and learn and love and listen and laugh. We can do lots of L words and know that you're here by divine right. So until the next episode, be well. Thank you for listening. I trust you gained some valuable inspiration and information. Please join me and other visionaries in the Someone Gets Me Facebook group. Or for more information on my services and additional episodes, visit someonegetsme.com. Again, thanks for listening.